Father, we come to a, a difficult passage for us to consider, and we pray that you would help us. We believe it is your word, as we just said, and we give you thanks for it. So help us to understand the wisdom. Every word of your, of your scripture is a jewel, is a treasure, so help us to um, receive the treasures of wisdom that is your word. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. So every week we, we come up here, I come up here to preach, and I'm not, I'm not providing you with um, Casey's tips for life, praise God. Um, that's, not, that's not the objective. My objective is to, as faithfully as possible, communicate God's Word, the Scriptures, the Bible. And what that means for us is typically, and we've, we've only done this so far since in our two-year history, we work our way through books of the Bible. Now, there may be a time where we go through a topic, but it'll, it'll always be derived from the Scriptures. But one of the advantages of going through books of the Bible is you get to preach passages that you would never just preach on your own. I, I would never, I, I cannot imagine coming to this path if I was just given an opportunity to preach, thinking, I'm going to preach this passage. Because it's difficult. It's, it's a really difficult passage. But here's the thing. We believe that all of God's word is God-breathed, and there is wisdom and, and something for us on every page of Scripture. And listen to what the Reform, this is, a, this is from a Swiss um, Reformation document um, coming out of the 16th century. This is what the Second Helvetic Confession uh, says regarding the preached word. When the word of God is preached in the church by preachers lawfully called, we believe, listen to this, the very word of God is proclaimed and received by the faithful. That what the preacher is saying, and it even says, apart from all the failures of the preacher, apart from all the sin that exists in the failure, when a preacher called by God is preaching the word, it's the word of God being proclaimed. That makes me want to run back and hide in the storage room for the next 40 minutes. I mean, that's, that's petrifying, but that's what we believe is happening, that God's Spirit is speaking through this, and there's wisdom there. And you'll notice the title of the sermon this week, uh, it's, again, we're talking about two familiar topics, sin and God's grace. It's not what we talk about every week. Every week it's like our sin or God's grace or our sin, and that's true. You know, we believe that a proper understanding of ourselves and a proper understanding of, of God and his graciousness towards sinners is the, the key. They're, they're foundational for the life of wisdom. John Calvin opens his whole institutes with that point. He says the knowledge of God, knowledge of, of, of us individually as sinners, and knowledge of God and his grace to us, it's fundamental to the path of wisdom. Okay? And so that's why we keep coming back to That's why I believe the scripture keeps bringing us back to these points. Okay, now listen, so what's wisdom? Cornelius Plantinga, Plantinga gives us a good, good definition. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it. He says, in the liter- literature of the Bible, wisdom is, very broadly speaking, the knowledge of God's world and the knack for fitting oneself into it. The wise person knows creation. The wise person knows its boundaries, knows its limits understands its laws and its rhythms, discerns its time, seasons, respects its great dynamic, dynamics. 
Okay, that's the wise person. Now, the fool, on the other hand, the scripture is always contrasting the wise and the righteous and the fool and the, and the, sin, the sinful. Okay, so the fool and the sinner, on the other hand, forgets God. Is in a constant state of forgetting God and forgetting that this is God's creation, that this is our Father's world as we sing. And sin, wants, it wants to control. It doesn't want to submit to limits and boundaries. It wants to control creation. It ignores those boundaries. It ignores the laws and the rhythms of, of creation. And it's not content to live within them. It wants to conquer. That's what sin makes us want. It wants to conquer uh, maybe another nation, want to conquer our, our bodies and, and put a conquest along, uh, uh, to our bodies to conquer them in a way that we see fit. It wants to conquer another person's body. It wants to conquer um, the world, creation, not to steward it. Right? Sin has put us on this conquest of creation, not submission and stewardship. And here's the illusion. The illusion of sin is that you can kind of get your toes wet and sort of dabble a little bit and maintain control over it. Back in Genesis chapter 4, do you remember how God uh, described sin to Cain? He said it's a crouching predator. What, what is a crouching predator? He said sin is like a crouching predator that's after you. Think about a crouching animal. What are they doing? They're getting small. They're concealing the threat that they pose. They look safer than they are when they're crouching. You can't really see them. They're little. They look little. And that's how sin, we, we often think of sin as just like, it's, it's pretty, this isn't a big deal. I can do this. I can kind of keep this little corner of my life moving and stay under control. But no, it's a crouching predator. You do that, the next thing you know, you've got a, you've got a, a beast on your back that's going for the jugular. That's what sin does. We can't control it. It's not manageable. And Here's the thing, we've seen sin in the life of the family of faith, in the life of Abraham, we've seen the life of Isaac, we've seen it in the life of Jacob. What I want us to see is, this sin has kind of taken on a life of, of its own, and we're going to see it as it kind of moves down into the next generation. The family of faith, even though God's blessing, His hand, His grace, His protection is on them, they are not immune to the consequences of sin. They're experiencing it, and we see it in this passage, and it, it happens over this, this injustice against Dinah. And so what I want us to consider is, um, is the perpetrator and how they deal with their sin in this situation, and then the protectors of Dinah, Dinah's family, her father and her brothers, how they deal with sin. But first, let's consider the sin against Dinah. Look at chapter 34, verse 1, the first verse. It says, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. Now, first thing to note, this is, this is not, this is ill-advised for Leah. I mean, I'm sorry, for, for Dinah. It was not wise for a young woman to, to go unchaperoned into a whole other town, a whole other city, without any, anyone. And then secondly, look at what, she's, what her goal is. What does she want to do in the big city? She wants to see the way of the women of the land. She wants to see the way of the Canaanite lady folk. Now, remember, what did Abraham and Sarah, you can't marry one of these Canaanite women. They're trouble. 
What did the next generation, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob, go? You can't marry the Canaanite women. They're trouble. And here, Dinah is wanting to go to learn, to see the way of the Canaanite women, to see how they dress, how they talk, how they act, what they do. So she goes. Now, there's, there's a more subtle motivation. I, I think there's something else being said here that's, that's subtle. And that is the motivation for her embarking on this journey. And it's subtle. You see it there. How is Dinah described? The daughter of Leah. The daughter of Leah. Remember, Leah is the one that Jacob is kind of his accident wife. The wife that he didn't want. The mistake. And we saw after, after their marriage that Jacob didn't, doesn't seem to love Leah. Not like he loves Rachel, for sure. And you can imagine that that same kind of disregard for, for Leah, Jacob's wife, works itself down to the next generation, to Leah. Probably. In fact, the text is saying that. It's, it's not describing her as Jacob's daughter. It describes her as the daughter of Leah. Kind of second class within the family. And let me say this. Those who have, are most sexually vulnerable in this world are those who live on the outskirts of their father and mother's love. Those that are most sexually vulnerable in this world are those who live on the outskirts of their father and mother's love. I think of the, the Ukrainian situation and the, the threat all these orphan children that have been orphaned because of the war or were, were orphaned and they're making their way to safety in Poland. And as soon as they get there, what do they have to look out for? Predators, right? They're, vulner- they're, out, they're on the outskirts. Their parents may not even be alive. And they're vulnerable. They're vulnerable to, to this kind of crime, to this kind of sin. And so what happens? Look at verse 2. When Shechem... The son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her, lay with her, and humiliated her. Okay, The, the Bible is very clear on sex, that, that sex is, is for one man and one woman in the context of a covenantal relationship called marriage. And that if, if you're not ready to share uh, your life, to share your finances, to share your dreams to bear your soul with another person in the context of that marriage union, you're not ready to share your body parts with that person or to bear your body parts to that person. And, and that's, that's the Bible. That's not just the Bible. That's actually every major religion has a view of, of, of human sexuality that's along those lines. Um, and anything outside of that is, 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 off, is off limits. But this is, this, is wor- this is not premarital sex here. This is, this is sexual assault. This is something that, that Dinah has experienced in this moment. What one in five women in the United States have experienced, and one in four men have experienced in the U.S., and that is sexual assault. And that means, those statistics means that inevitably this has impacted some of us, some, some of you here today, this morning. And there is... There is no way that I can say what needs to be said regarding that. I don't even know that this is the proper spot from which to even speak um, to this matter in in a particular way. But generally, what I want to say is this. God, you, you have suffered a wrong and an evil. 
it, that was wrong, and, and, and God is near you in your suffering. In fact, our Lord himself experienced similar shame and humiliation as he was stripped naked, and his body was violated in all sorts of ways, violently, with the Roman soldiers. He's near, he's near you in that struggle. And here's the promise for all of God's people, and that is that healing can come. Healing is available to you. It may not happen quickly, but it will happen over the course of time in relationships with others, developing friendships and maybe seeking professional counseling. But over the course of time, God's promise is that he will heal all sin, including this particular sin of sexual assault. So this happens to Dinah. And then it says, Shechem's soul is drawn to her. And he goes to his father, Hamor, verse 4, and look at what he says. Get me this girl for my wife. Now, it is, it is just that rude in the Hebrew, what he says. You get the sense he's the prince. He's honored in the land, it says later on. This guy uh, seems like, a, you know, just kind of this demanding prince. Get me this woman, this girl, for my wife. And so Shechem and his father Hamor go to Jacob. And Jacob hears of what, what happens, and his sons hear it, and they are indignant. So now I want us to focus on the, the, the response of the perpetrator. We're going to come back to Jacob and his, bro- and his sons, Dinah's brothers, uh, in just a moment. But let's focus on the perpetrator. And here's the thing I want you to see, the main thing. The perpetrator downplays and denies his sin in this instance. There is a lot of self-denial going on in all of this. Dismissing the evil of what had happened. Let's let's look at at verse 8. So Hamor, Shechem's father, spoke to Jacob and, and the sons and said, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. You know, Hamor's, we've got some exciting, Jacob, I've got something really exciting. My, my son Shechem here, he's found his soulmate. Would you please let him marry her? It's very polite, you'll notice. Never mind, like totally dismissing the fact that he has sexually assaulted Dinah and that he's holding Dinah captive in his, in his home, verse 26 says. She's, she's stuck, she's in captivity right now at the house of Shechem. See, here's the thing. This is all too often what we do when it comes to our sin. We, we, we downplay it. We dismiss it. We live in denial of it. There's no sense that Shechem and Hamor have, have wronged not just Dinah, but the whole family, the whole clan. They're just asking, can we marry your daughter? You could think of sin like a beach ball at a pool. You know, if you're in a pool and you have a beach ball and you try to submerge it, Sin is like the beach ball. You try to submerge it, kind of get it out of sight. What happens to that beach ball? Can you keep it submerged? No, it pops back up in your face. But we try, don't we? And they're putting that beach ball of this sin underwater and saying, hey, my son found his soulmate. You know, never mind that he did all of this, that he did this sin. Nothing to see here. Just a strapping young prince that wants to marry your daughter. Prince Charming here that wants to marry your daughter. That's all we got. 
And then look, let's keep going. Verse 9. And look at what we can do. We can make marriages. We, we can marry your daughters and you can marry our daughters. Verse 10. You can live with us and the land will be open to you. We can dwell and trade together. You can get property. We, we can become rich together. There's no sense of wrong on the perpetrator and his family. They're thinking in terms of an opportunity for an alliance to strengthen them. And we see the same kind of self-denial when it comes to kind of the paper-thin public apologies that we've grown accustomed to recently. We had one this past week. Um, Plantinga talks about, in 1992, a senator who was charged by 16 women came forward and said that they had been harassed and... um, uh, harassed and, and kind of all sorts of problems with the senator. Uh, and, and his response to that was so predictable. And it's, it's similar to what we see here in Shechem. First of all, he said, not true, not at all true. And then he said, these women, all 16 of them, whose stories is per- are perfectly consistent, and they're all independent stories, come, they're all crazy. There's no credibility here with these women. And then, and then after doing that, he issued an apology, saying that it was never his intent to make anyone feel uncomfortable. And then he said that he was currently seeking professional help to see if his alcohol may not have somehow contributed to some of this. Listen to what Plantinga says. He says, here's an apology of major elusiveness. According to the senator, nothing happened. But in any case, he meant no harm by it. And regardless, he might have been loaded at the time, drunk, so he missed the significance of the non-event in question. Do you follow that? You don't follow it, because <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. And that's what sin does. In an, effort to deny, in an effort to hide the beach ball under the water, we become this bundle of contradictions. We become fools. We become fools. We think we can outsmart the truth of our sin, but we can't. We can't. I mean, they're, sp- they're spinning this evil and wicked act as an opportunity for both them and the offended party to live their best lives. Let's unite. We could be strong in this ancient Near East together. The sin of Shechem is either conveniently ignored or denied altogether. It's swept under the rug. But it, it keeps going. Look at verses 20. So they go, Hamor and Shechem... They go back to their, their land, their, their town, and they meet at the gate, which was like the town hall. So they have sort of a town hall meeting to tell their people the plan. So Hamor, Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city, and they spoke to the men. And they said, these men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land, trade in it, for behold, the, large, the land's large enough. They can have uh, our daughters, we can give them Our daughters, there is just one thing you should know. (laughs) In order for this to happen, all of you guys need to become circumcised. Now, here's the thing, though. Look at this. Have have they mentioned anything of the real reason for this alliance? Shechem's lust for Dinah? Right? They totally missed that part of the equation. 
They're selfishly suppressing the problem, highlighting all the positives, and inviting the community, community into that on that basis. Okay. You see, when we are far from Christ, when we are far from Christ, we are in denial about our sin. And we just sort of move forward with bouncy optimism. Just like Shechem and Hamor here. The sin in their household. Doesn't matter. We got, we got alliances to make. We got to get rich off of this thing. And they're not being forthright with, with Jacob and his sons. They're not being forthright with their own community. When you're near Christ, this kind of sin zaps you of your strength. You can't go on without dealing with it. It makes your bones ache. It breaks your bones. It melts your heart within. This is all language that the Psalms use to describe what sin does to us. What sin does to the faithful. And this is why, this is why every week we confess our sins together as an effort to just let the beach ball pop out of the water and let it hang there and present it before God, confessing them, confessing the sin. And here's the thing, this is not to just wallow in uh, self-pity, but what happens when we let the beach ball pop out of the water is Christ comes and he takes a needle and he pops it, and we're reminded of the freedom that we have in that, in the life that we have, the forgiveness that we have from our sins. And we're left not wallowing in in our sin, but assured of his love for us. So the perpetrator here, Shechem and his father Hamor, seem very oblivious to the offense that they've caused on this family and on Dinah. But what about the good guys? What about the family of faith? How do they respond to this? What about the protectors? Well, let's consider two. There's two that we're going to consider. Jacob, the father of Dinah, and then the brothers. So first, Jacob. Jacob is largely indifferent to this report. Don't you think news like this would be reported immediately? Something we have had, This family has suffered a tragedy. Go report this to our sons. And he says, no, we're going to let them, we'll let them, uh, we'll, we'll tell them when they get back. I, I don't want to interrupt, disrupt. That's going to kind of get them upset. We'll wait until they get back. So he ignores he ignores, uh, he, he doesn't immediately tell his family. He takes, the, the negotiations happen, and guess, where does Jacob, what happens to Jacob? He just kind of recedes to the background. Did you notice that? He falls back, takes a back seat, and the brothers step forward. I want you to also notice this. This is important. In Genesis chapter 28, Jacob receives the vision, and it's a ladder from heaven with angels ascending and descending, and he said, surely this is, this is God's place. And this was at Bethel, and he said, when I come back to my father's land, I'm going I'm to go to Bethel. I'm going to return to Bethel. Well, he's come back into his father's land, but guess what? He stopped short. He's not going where he vowed to go. He stopped at Shechem. He didn't go all the way to Bethel. So he's not living in step with his walk of faith and what he told God he would do. And it says in the end of chapter 33, that Lot pitched his tent near the city. It's reminiscent of Lot pitching his tent 
near Sodom, which led to similar sexual sin for, the, for, for Lot and his family. Jacob is not leading well in this. It's much like his situation in the home with his wife squabbling and, and fighting over each other and envious of one another, and he just sort of recedes to the background, seemingly indifferent to the suffering of his daughter, Dinah. So let me ask you, you know, what about you? There's injustice, gross injustice happening all around. What is your response to it? John Stott says the church isn't angry enough that we're far too comfortable with injustice that happens in the world around us. That we're not sensitive enough to the suffering of the world. That we sort of yawn when we hear about gross evil and wickedness in the world. Well, the sons, on the other hand, uh, respond very differently. They are angry. And, they're, and pro- properly so, they're angry. This is something to be angry about. But their anger quickly bleeds over into bitterness and quickly ble- bleeds over into revenge. And we see that here. As Jacob, see, here's the thing as Jacob sort of recedes, there, a gross, evil, and unjust thing has happened to Dinah. And Jacob, rather than leading the family through it, he recedes. And guess what's created? There's a, there's a justice vacuum. There's, there's a lack of, of leadership in this thing that needs to be dealt with. You, ha- you have to deal with this. So guess who, guess who comes in, fills the vacuum? 18 to 22-year-old brothers. Okay, That's who steps in. And they begin to handle the negotiations. And look at, look at what they say. Look at verse 11. So um, Shechem and Hamor make the suggestion of this family merge where it will be like, you know, just heaven on earth between these families. And, um, and then Shechem uh, said to Jacob and her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask for me as great a bride price and gift as you will. I'll give you whatever you say to me. Anything for Dinah. Give me the, only, just give me the young woman to be my wife. Have we heard this before? This sounds like Jacob. I'll, anything, Laban. Anything. You name the price. I'll do it. And Here's Laban's, Laban's nephews, his son, Jacob's son, sons. Hear this, and they're thinking, ooh, we got an opportunity. We got these guys wrapped around our fingers. So what do they do? Look at verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully. There's that word, deceitfully. This is the name, this is the, this is the story, right? Jacob's deceit. I, actually, when it relates to the nations, Abraham's deceit. She's my sister. Isaac's deceit to the nations. She's my sister, not my wife. And Jacob's deceit. Of course, Laban's deceit. The apple's fa- falling not far from the tree with, these ne- with this next generation. And so they, say, they said to them, the brothers say to them, we cannot do this thing. We can't, we can't make this arrangement to our sister, to one who is uncircumcised. That would be a disgrace to this. But there is one thing you can do. And that is that you become every male among you, verse 15, be circumcised. Then we will give, verse 16, then we will give our daughters to you. 
We'll take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, we're taking Dinah and we're going our way. And the city agrees to this. And the men of the city on the third day, when they're just totally immobilized in their tents, recovering in full recovery stage, two brothers, Simeon and Levi, take up their swords and they go and they slaughter every man in the town. And so they have dealt with one tragedy, the rape of Dinah, with another tragedy, a greater tragedy, the slaughter of a city. Remember, remember what we said? Remember what God said in Genesis chapter 4? Sin crouches. Sin crouches. The deception in the life of Jacob over blessing, the deception in the life of Laban over labor and wages, has now gone next level with a deception that has led to the slaughter of a whole village. And by the way, this, this violence is on the tribes of Simeon and on the tribes of Levi for generations, Jacob says. And when Jacob's giving his blessing, he, he mentions this as the violence that's going to be on their tribes because of their violent act here, Genesis 49.5. So, so how does the next generation look? The, the baton's being passed here. The story is beginning to shift from Jacob to his sons. How's the next generation look? How do those promises of God look? And did you see how they deceived them? Did you see what they used? God's covenant sign of circumcision? The sign that was to set the people of God apart as, as, as God's people that were going to be a blessing, not just blessed by God, but were to be a blessing to the nations? Jacob's sons, they're using that sign not to bless the nations, but to slaughter the nations, to destroy the Hivites. And look at Jacob's response, verse 30. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you've brought trouble on me by making me stink to these inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. If they gather themselves against me and attack me, I'm, I'm a dead man. Both me and my household. You hear what he's saying? Does ja- what, what is Jacob, what's Jacob thinking about in all this? I've got trouble on my hands. Is, he, is Jacob cognizant of Dinah, the injustice to Dinah? No. Is he cognizant of the, the, the injustice that has just come at his, because of his clan, his tribe, upon another tribe? The wiping out of a whole tribe? Is he aware of that? He doesn't seem to be bothered by that. He's like, you guys made a big tactical error because we just moved into this place and now we've all, we, little us, little, our little tribe has big target on our back to all these neighbors. Good job, Simeon and Levi. That's what he's thinking. And look at what Simeon and Levi say in response, verse 31. Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Now. We, we, we began by talking about wisdom, and I want to ask you, um, who in this story is acting wisely in this story? Dinah made a mistake by going into this city on her own, no family. Shechem made an obvious mistake, suppressing his sin, denying Hamor. 
Jacob sinned by not seeming to care and sort of receding and passively letting, the, letting this whole thing unfold. The boys sinned grievous, grievously by destroying a whole village and putting blood on their hands. None of these characters are acting wisely. Now, I said at the beginning that Calvin uh, in his institute says that, that the, the only, we have two things for wisdom. We have to have a self-knowledge and we have to have a knowledge of God. And we really can't know ourselves apart from God. And I want to suggest to you that the family, the family of faith here, is not living in step or in their lives in reference to God Almighty, their creator and their covenant God, that they're not living in step with that. And the clue, I think, comes in this final statement. It's kind of weird the way it just hangs out there, doesn't it? Verse 31. You know, imagine the family's telling the story, and this is kind of a natural break of the story. And, you know, they're reading each little story or speaking the story to the kids, to the family, or to the people around the campfire. And then they say, Simeon and Levi, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Good night, everybody. We'll, we'll, we'll pick up the story tomorrow. It's kind of a weird way to end the story. Just dangles out there. The question, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And one commentator has suggested that what is being done here in this story and why it just kind of leaves you hanging right there is it's intended to ask us to reflect upon the question. And upon further reflection, we begin to realize, wait a second, all of the Canaanites, they treat their gods like prostitutes. Let me explain. The, the idolatry goes something like this. I pay you, God, in the form of a grain offering or I sacrifice an animal, maybe even sacrifice one of my own. Um, I sacrifice something, and in return, you give me a bountiful harvest, you bring the rains, you give me safe travels, you give me lots of kids. You give things back. That's, how, that's the transactional nature of idolatry as expressed in this day and age. And the question is, is the family of faith treating God like a prostitute? Is the family of faith only interested in the blessings that God gives, his protection, his land, his love towards them, but they, they're not interested in a relationship with him, in loving God, they just love what he gives? Is that what's happening here? And here's the thing. You know, we said already that Jacob is not being true to the vow that he gave in Genesis chapter 28. He's not going to Bethel like he said he would. He stopped short. And in the very next passage, which we'll see next week, Jacob invites his family to bring forward their household gods, their idols. This family currently has a host of idols that they're worshiping alongside Yahweh. And it's as though they've adopted the religious practices of their neighbors. God, I love what you can do for me. I give you a little payment, a little offering, whatever it is, and you scratch my back. You give me favors. You take care of me. You take care of my family. You do these things for me. But throughout the Old Testament, and especially in the New Testament, we see God relates to his people in a covenant. He liken, God likens it to marriage. In fact, that, that metaphor, that image, is full-blown in the New Testament. 
that Christ, God, has entered into a marriage relationship with his church, with his people. And get this, the bride price was high. He gave it all. He poured out his very life, his blood. He washed us clean to gain us as his bride. And we are called to him to live by grace. By grace we've been saved. It's not on the basis of anything that we've done. It's solely by his choice and grace to us. And he's brought us into his family. Now, here's the implication. There's an implication to that. Big implication to the fact that we've been saved by grace. If he gave us everything and there wasn't anything that he would withhold from us, what does that mean for us? There's not anything we can withhold from him. The old God as prostitute, God as I pay you and you do these things for me, you, you, you maintain control in that relationship. You've got some autonomy in that relationship. Give you a little grain offering, you give me a good harvest, and we'll be good. But that's not the relationship that God has with his people. He's come to us in marriage, and, he, and, and, and we give our whole lives. Our whole lives are lived as living sacrifices to him. His grace to us demands everything from us. And if anything is clear um, in this story, we're, we're beginning, again, we're beginning to focus on the next generation. And they are no better, no better than the previous generation. In fact, you might say things that look to be getting worse, actually. But here's the thing, God is still at work in this mess. He's still working his promises out through this family, riddled with problems, riddled with sin. He's working it out because it's his faithfulness, not their faithfulness. And he's working his, he's working his perfect salvation purposes out in the mess of our lives too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your commitment to us that we see your faithfulness to um, a family that, is, um, that has problems. And honest, if we're honest, we're not much different. Uh, we are no different. We are uh, equally alienated from you apart from Christ. And we thank you that you have invited us to you, that our trust is not in our faithfulness to you, but your faithfulness to us. Great is your faithfulness as we sing. So help us to live our lives out of that faithfulness. Make us, make us people of gratitude. Draw us closer to you so that we live in step with your spirit and living in step with you, that we're quick to confess our sins, that we're quick to let the beach ball pop out of the water so that you can uh, remind us of your grace and that sin loses its power as it hits the light of day. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.